You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. All right, Mark chapter 4. We've been preaching through the gospel of Mark. It's 16 chapters. It's the shortest gospel. Uh, What most theologians believe is that this was the eyewitness account of the apostle Peter recorded for us. And we find ourselves in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. We're going to work from 26 to 34 today, teaching on two of Jesus' parables. So the beginning of the Gospel of Mark starts rather abruptly. It starts off by Jesus saying, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And very quickly he moves from that, and this large swarm of people begin to rally around him. And in that day and age, as I've said this more than once, it's not uncommon for a large group of people to follow a charismatic individual. Uh, Somebody claiming to be Messiah was not uncommon then, uh, nor is it uncommon actually today. There's many people that claim that type of messianic role. But in that first century time, there's nearly a dozen people that claim that. So Jesus then um, is like one of those other apocalyptic individuals. And in doing so, he begins to teach about the kingdom. Now, what's fascinating about this is that uh, the Jews of that time were looking for a literal, physical kingdom. It's actually one of the reasons we find out that they end up uh, really destroying Jesus is that their expectation for the Messiah was that he would bring a literal, physical kingdom. Uh, This is fundamentally the reason that uh, uh, Jewish um, people to this day do not hold that Jesus or anyone else is the Messiah for the sole reason that when they read the Old Testament prophecies, uh, particularly Isaiah is very, very strikingly clear, they expected that this Messiah would come and inaugurate uh, heaven on earth in a moment. They expected that this, all this world would be renewed instantly. And because of that, because Jesus doesn't renew it instantly, they end up saying to him, well, you're just, just another uh, a liar, a thief, and they end up crucifying him Uh, The religious of the leaders of the day are at the forefront of that matter. So at the beginning of Jesus' teaching, he begins to share two rather unique parables, which are interesting, explaining his kingdom. We'll read together, starting in verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God, as is if a man should scatter seed on the ground, he sleeps and rises. Night and day, the seed sprouts, it grows, yet he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Second parable. And he said, what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable should we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which was sown on the ground. It's the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the words to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, uh, Jesus is sharing this, this parable for a very distinct purpose. This isn't Jesus trying to speak in cryptic code or as if he you know, just kind of floated around and just tried to confuse people. You know, parables, though, have really, it's interesting. Growing up, I would hear a parable was a heavenly story or an earthly story with a heavenly truth. Yes, but a parable was not only to reveal truth, it was also to conceal it. It was this idea, and even to this day, what's interesting about this, and you're going to see the, the major thrust of this parable is this, 
that Jesus is actually the King of Kings is hidden in something so plainly before our eyes. So even though Jesus is sharing these parables, it's not that to just say, this is exactly what I want you to know, but rather, if you're interested in spirituality, which really brings an interesting point. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, and, and to this day, unfortunately, we don't always do a good job about uh, conveying that, he wasn't really looking for attention. That's really interesting. Jesus wasn't trying to find this large crowd to follow him. He's not against large crowds. He's looking for people to be discipled, to follow him, to know him, to love him. He's not necessarily saying that I really need people's attention. If they don't give it to me, I'm having an identity crisis. In fact, we see a couple times Jesus gets this really large crowd around him and he blows up the crowd. Not physically blows up the crowd. That would be really unfortunate. You've got to clarify being that he is God. He doesn't blow the crowd up, but he just says a very controversial statement and everybody leaves it. So Jesus is in this thing. He's trying to say to people, this is what my kingdom looks like. See, at that time, if you're familiar just with the context of that period of time, the Roman Empire started, I mean, some people say 700 years, but it wasn't really in its full, um, you know, primacy or whatever until just a little bit before Jesus was born. I believe it was about 25, 30 years before Jesus was born. And 180 years or so after him was what was considered the Pax Romana, Roman peace, where Rome itself was this, um, was actually later on referred to as the eternal city. The people in Rome, it wasn't just like we're Americans and we get upset at our government and we make a vote or we have political parties. At Rome, there was actually to the point where that the imperial cult the Roman Empire was the dominant religion of that day. That's something that's very interesting that you can uh, very easily see, that even Caesar was considered um, the, 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 the son of God. That was actually a title that um, developed out of uh, Roman history, which is kind of interesting. So Jesus comes in, though, and he says this, my kingdom's different. My kingdom's different. It doesn't come through swords. It comes through salvation. It doesn't come from enslaving people. It comes from serving people. It doesn't come with this loud boom. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says that your natural kingdoms are all about people lording over you, but I've come to serve. And Jesus tells us that this is what the kingdom's like. The kingdom has this assurance about it. As if a man just scatters seed, it hits the ground, and he goes to sleep. He's not worried about it. He talks to us about the sovereignty of God here. This idea that God's kingdom is growing in this earth. And let me encourage you, in this city, regardless of if we see it or not, God is constantly working, constantly doing something. We have to be uh, incredibly careful to not reduce the kingdom of God to something that we do, but yet recognize that his spirit is constantly at work in our hearts and lives, whether we see it. Then he goes on to say this. The second parable, and I want to focus a little bit more on that. I have to remember that there's not necessarily breaks in when he was teaching. He said, what can we compare the kingdom? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the small seed that when planted in a garden, it grows to become the largest tree, or the largest of garden plants, although the Greek there is actually tree, so that the birds of the air can make their nests in its shade. This is interesting. Jesus uses the imagery of a tree, a seed and a tree. Why? I, think, I find it fascinating when you look in the, in the, in the scripture, there's certain themes that are recapitulated, that, that play over and over and over. 
We understand that death came by a tree in the book of Genesis, that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it came through a tree. Yet Jesus is alluding to this idea that he is the kingdom incarnate. He is the rule of God, the reign of God, God himself sown into this world as a seed. And this is, this is mind-blowing for the, for the sake of this. I was recently you know, sharing, just communicating about the gospel. We um, were talking about this, and I say, you know, when, when we, we don't necessarily recognize the scandal of God's grace, the scandal of what he's done here. You know, when things uh, go wrong in our lives, we instantly go, why God? Or God, what, why aren't you doing something different? But yet, um, we all have markings of not only a carbon footprint, you're using those aerosol cans on your hair, right? But a suffering footprint. I was, I was contemplating this even this morning. I was thinking through it. You know, all of us, uh, you know, in Scranton, you don't have to recycle. It's actually more, in, uh, it's inconvenient to recycle in Scranton. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, they don't have any reward program in New York. They pay you to recycle. That's awesome. And in, in Pennsylvania, it's like they punish you. It makes you do more work, right? So we're just leaving this huge carbon footprint Everywhere we go, the cars and everything, we see temperatures are rising um, globally, whether you want to, whatever, scientists are tracking. It is what it is. Hopefully they come down. But I I heard somebody recently said in in like 50, 60 years, Pennsylvania, maybe like Georgia. I'm not going to lie. That sounds great. All right. (laughs) I'm just saying. That's cool. As long as the waters don't rise. No. But we we all have a carbon footprint. We're, we're, you know, uh, we're a part of, yes, Lord. All right, it's just a lie. I thought he was doing something. We're all a part of, of, uh, of marking this world. You know, everything we do. And it's interesting that if you really look at humanity, um, even our solutions to problems typically cause more problems. Uh, you particularly see this with, like, medication commercials. Have you ever noticed that? It starts off, and it's like, I used to bleed out of my eyes. My nose would constantly itch, and I couldn't stop throwing up you know, 15 times a day. Now, with this medicine, I no longer bleed out my eyes. I bleed out my ears and do this, 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 this. And they have to, like, you know what I'm talking about. It, it fixes one thing, but in fixing one thing, it causes another. And I, I'm, I know I'm using, you know, hyperbole there, but simply saying this, that everything we do never really gets to the root. Have you seen that? Everything we do, we try to vote in a new budget plan without ever getting to the problem. And it's, it's one of these things that and I'm not speaking politically of a party, I'm just simply saying that as humans, it's almost as if we're on this grand journey of the more we try to be God, the more, t- the more problems we create. So we fix one and we create them. I was recently thinking about this, and I, maybe this is just me as being an idealist, and honestly our world economy would probably crash if this was the case, but how many jobs, how much of our economy goes into trying to Hold in human suffering. How much of it, and I'm not talking about um, natural disasters. I'm talking about things that humans do against other humans. Think about how many jobs and how many bureaus and how many committees and councils and, and, and real things. And I'm not saying that those, are necessary, that those are bad. I believe God's calling Christians to go into those spheres and be salt and light. But think about that. How much... You know, if there was no human-to-human suffering, I'm not talking about natural disasters and things that are clearly out of can, our control, but what about the things in our control? See, when we, when we think about the scandal of God's grace, we have to recognize that all of us, in one way or another, myself included, contribute to the suffering of mankind. 
I just do. It's not something I'm consciously going out and, you know, like I'm not, you know, intentionally hurting people. It's just in my life. The sinfulness of my heart has caused me to contribute and to create a, a suffering footprint. But here's the scandal of God's grace. Jesus, who has not contributed in any way to human suffering. Zero. See, if I do something wrong and I'm punished, there's consequences for that. You know, I did something and justice is served. It's the ultimate justice for me to be uh, paid for what I did wrong. But yet, Jesus, watch this, is this seed, the smallest of seeds, sown into a New Testament time where they were actually relatively at peace. And this seed comes and grows up before them and is ultimately crucified on a tree. Why? As the ultimate act of injustice. The Christian doctrine is that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and sinless. So if I was falsely accused of a crime and uh, was punished for that crime, that would be unjust. But the truth is, I've, I've got away with other things in my life, probably many of them, I'm not quite sure what, but I probably got away with those things where I should have been judged. And I've hurt people and caused hurt. But yet the scandal of grace is this. The guy who doesn't have probably doesn't have a carbon footprint either because he wore sandals, but he doesn't have a suffering footprint. He doesn't leave anything in his wake. That's the person. That's the individual who grows up as this small seed and is ultimately crucified, the ultimate act of injustice. Ultimate act of injustice. Comparing this parable, this idea of a seed growing, the kingdom growing, we see in Isaiah chapter 53... In Old Testament prophecy, the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the coming of Christ, says this, Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom have the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and was esteemed not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6 says, And we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. I won't continue, although the rest of it is powerful. The prophet Isaiah starts off and says this, Who's going to believe this? Who's going to believe this claim? If you've not seen the gospel message in a way that actually brings you back and goes, that's hard for me to believe. I'm not talking about as a matter of historical fact. I think there's great, wonderful resources for you to see that there's a historical Jesus that lived and walked the earth and was crucified. But I'm talking about that for me, that's not the hard part. Hard part's not to look at Jesus and say, oh yeah, he lived, he died, you know, he was crucified. That's not difficult. What's hard for me is the question of why? Why? It says this that a man scatters seed, something in the heart of God chose to go to a world that was rejecting him. 
totally rejected it. And he goes, and, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to wait for them to cry out and say, you know, my, I'll tell you what, my grass never says mow me. I'm really good at ignoring that, let alone the ground says sow seed into me. You know, I've done a wonderful job of ignoring my grass. If you've seen that, I was joking with my wife the other day. I really take specific time to spend time with my neighbors because I think they're probably go, he's a wonderful kid. He just doesn't know how to mow his grass. So listen, the ground doesn't cry out, you know, feed me, sow seed into me. This is in the heart of God that he decides to sow seed. What's amazing about this is, is this is what we see. And this is the time in which we live. When he talks about the kingdom, And I use this phrase that Jesus is the kingdom incarnate specifically for this. That Jesus is the king, the rule, and reign of God in a person. The transcendence of God, the the, the unlimitedness, unlimitedness of God, the limitlessness, I think I just made three words up, of God in a human body. Think about it. The omnipotence of God knows everything trapped in the confines of a human body. The omnipresence of God, a God that is everywhere at once, confined willingly into a human body. This is really an odd thing when you think about the why behind this, but yet this is where we leave. See, or we live. The kingdom comes small. We live in an age, in a time, when something right now, it's almost as if we go, God, where are you? Have you ever asked yourself that? God, where are you? God, where are you? And we live in this time when when we look at the kingdom, it's confusing because we see elements of it. We see it growing here and there. We see people's hearts becoming uh, enriched and on fire to live for Jesus. We see moments where God heals physical bodies. We see moments when God restores marriages and brokenness. We see parts of that. But yet when we look and if we're honest with ourselves, we go, God, where are you? I want to suggest to you that that's not God's absence. That's God's mercy for this reason. There will come a day. There will come a day when this small seed that came as a baby some 2,000 years ago who grew up And in his life, his death, and his resurrection, now that kingdom that was literally confined to a person, I'm careful in how I say that, I understand if you're a theologian and you're wrestling with that right now, please track with me, we'll talk later, all right? It was confined perfectly, let me say it that way, to who he is. That there was no separation between God's will and the will of Jesus. It starts as a small seed. But yet we see that this tree that brought death in Genesis, the tree that brings us life in the Gospels, that Jesus is crucified on a tree, we understand that at the end of human history, what takes place in Revelation 21 is this. It's not about helicopters blowing things up. That's not the story of Revelation. The story of Revelation is this, that Jesus is going to bring his kingdom here again. Here again. We're not getting whisked away. You know, you're, don't, you know, some of us are a little insecure about, you know, like we don't work out all the time. You're not going to have to wear a toga and float around on clouds and play a harp, all right? Some of us are thinking, I've got to have a shirt off, I'm not musical, and I'm scared of clouds. That's like, that doesn't sound like heaven. Listen, that's not it. The point of this whole story is this, that in the beginning, watch this, a tree brings death. 
So what takes place? Jesus, a seed comes and grows up and dies on a tree. But ultimately we see this, that in the book of Revelation, when Christ returns triumphant and the kingdom is here and there is no separation. We read in Revelation 21 that now there is a tree that bears fruit in all seasons and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. What does that mean? Here's the imagery. Right now we go, God, where are you? God, where are you? I mean, I see moments you break in and other moments I go, God, where are you? This doesn't make sense. But the imagery is of this. It's not of his absence. I believe it's of his present mercy. What he's trying to show us is this, that God, rather coming in justice right now, this is, this is, I'm sorry, this is blowing my mind of nobody else. I'm not asking you to be go wowed at me. I'm just saying I'm a little bit taken up in what the story is because it's phenomenal. Here it is. Rather than him coming and punishing the injustice, which, if we're honest, is due us and this world. And I'm not talking about some angry God. I'm talking about justice in a good way. Personally, I would not want to serve a God who allows all of this terrible stuff to happen and he just goes like, yeah, I'm okay with that. That's pretty good. Like, not a big deal. Like, yeah, it's a bad day for them. I want to serve a God who ultimately, I'm not talking about punishes them as if uh, I'm you know, angry at people want them punished. No. But a God who is just, who brings things back to its original value. So when we say, God, where are you? It's not his absence, it's his presence in this. God, in his mercy, we read throughout the book of Romans, has held back this time of reckoning in time of justice so that people now could come under the shade of the tree, Jesus, who will eventually overtake the earth. I sound like a madman, don't I? It's true. (laughs) I'm like, let's do it. No, it's not our job. But Jesus right now, this seed... This baby, I think that's amazing. The weakness, the frailty of human life. He comes, and in this moment, he's not absent from human history. He's not to this point where we go, God, where are you? God's going, no, don't, don't, don't worry. There, there will come a time when justice is here on this earth. But until that time, right now, it starts to seed. It'll eventually overtake the world, overtake the earth. That's the biblical story. However, in this present time, you have a choice. And this is the mystery of the kingdom. This is the scary part of this. That in the present time and age, we have a choice to either choose or reject the inevitable. That's the mystery of the kingdom. That God in this present time has given you the choice to either say, I want that kingdom that's eventually going to overtake this earth, that's already presently breaking into this world, I can allow that to come into my life and begin to change it. Justice can be absorbed in Christ and I can have his new life. In this present moment, the the mystery of the kingdom is this. People will still look at it and say it's foolishness. Ah, I don't really need it better on my own. I don't need that. No, it starts small. It's a seed. I think it's phenomenal, you know, to look at Christ in the way that he came to this earth as a baby. I say this jokingly, as you'll see. I've often wondered why Jesus doesn't show up during the halftime Super Bowl, especially when it was Janet Jackson. Knock her off stage and say, here I am. 
That would have, that would have, to me, would have won the world. People just go, you got rid of Janet Jackson and you appeared? Yes, that's, that's, that's really good. I say that, I say that jokingly, but the reason I say that is this. The, the mystery of the kingdom is that we far too often live this in a state of paralyzed apathy that says, God, you know my address. You know, if, if you want to do something, go on and do it. Well, the only problem with that is transcendence became baby. Omnipresence became baby. Omniscience, baby. Omnipotence, all-powerful, became Christ in a child. We say, God, if you want my life, if you want to do something with me, then just take it. And he goes, no, that's not it. My kingdom's already here, and you have a choice now. Either enter or reject. My prayer this morning is that you would see this parable Like I said, not in the absence of God, where are you, but in his present mercy. And number two, his opportunity for grace. Please, rest assured, Christian, this morning, the kingdom of God is as a man who scatters seed and sleeps. I am so thankful that the God I serve is not up at night. Actually, he is up at night because he never sleeps. This is, again, a parable. I'm so glad... That, that, that he is able to be at rest. That when this whole world broke as it is, he didn't look to his son and to his spirit, three in one, and say, we're in trouble. This is going to be really bad. He didn't do that. Thankfully. He's not, this world is not spinning out of control and eventually he's going to catch up with it and bring it back. Thank you, God. That should bring such deep assurance to us as believers, knowing that in the, in the midst of brokenness, he is in control, will ultimately bring justice, but provides opportunity now for us to invite his kingdom in. I pray that you see that grace this morning. Amen. Um, before I pray, let me extend this invitation to you this morning. This small seed, Jesus, the, the creator of everything, who will again Take over everything. For in him and through him, for him, all things are made. Eventually that's going to take place. But my prayer is that you would allow yourself, through the mercy of God, given to us through the sacrificial death of Christ, we can enter that kingdom now. And we can provide people true grace, true restoration. The kingdom is such a paradox. It's not this, let's go out and fight people. It's not, let's go out and take things from people. It's not that. It's that Christ has given everything. We simply have to offer it. Let's pray this morning. Father, my hope and my prayer is that we would recognize the kingdom seed. You tell us that it's like a man that sows and rests. Thank you for the assurance of the kingdom. But thank you also for the active spreading of the kingdom. Lord, I, I know confidently that there's people here this morning that are outside of the shade of your kingdom, your present shade that's growing. They're outside of that. And I pray that you would awaken their hearts in time and space right now so that they can see that. Lord, ultimately, we know that everything that has a cause has an effect, but we also know that justice uh, will come. Lord, I thank you that for believers, for Christians, we stand under the shade of Christ this morning. The justice and wrath and due punishment has been absorbed in your Son. 
And now we confidently rest and choose to spread this good news. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.